Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would have mercy on us. We pray, Lord, that like Noah, you would grant that we might find grace in the eyes of the Lord. And Lord, that prompts us to think of what Paul wrote in Romans 5 when he spoke of how having been justified by faith, we have access into this grace in which we now stand. And Lord, we pray that that this would be true of us, that you would give us the gift of faith, that you would cause us to experience you in such a way that we know you to be the most compelling thing in all of existence. And Lord, we pray that, that by faith, we would boast in the hope of your glory. We pray, Lord, that, that because of the way that you intersect our lives, the way that you reveal yourself to us, Lord, we pray that you would cause us to be those who walk with you. And we ask that you'd help us to understand what that means now as we look into your word together. We pray that you'd speak to our hearts, that you would renew our minds, that you would transform us into the image of Christ our Lord. And we ask it in his name. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Genesis chapter 6, and we'll be looking together at this first chapter of the account of the flood. And as you turn there, uh, I think it's interesting that in God's providence, we come to Genesis 6, this account of the flood, at a time when the, the globe, the whole world, is experiencing this plague, this pandemic. And as strange as it may sound for me to say this, I think that that even as people lose their jobs and even as people suffer this sickness, God is doing something merciful for us through this virus. This virus has given us all the sense that we could get sick and we could die. And and perhaps, hopefully, that is pressing home to us a truth that's really the same whether we're in the midst of a global pandemic or not, because it is a reality that any one of us could die at any time. And the virus and the the heightened awareness of, of the precarious nature of our existence, I hope and pray, will press home to us the truth that we live by the mere mercy of God. We do not deserve life. God gives us life in His merciful grace. And if we can embrace that perspective, if that can become our perspective, it will produce in us hearts of gratitude, grateful hearts that are ready to rejoice in God's good gift of life. We've been looking at the book of Genesis, and we've seen the way that God created all things good in Genesis 1, and then we saw this this pristine and glorious environment in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2, and the way that God brought the man and the woman together, having blessed them at the end of Genesis 1, and commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. And then in Genesis 3, we saw how 
the, the serpent entered the garden, and he enticed the woman, he tempted the woman, and then the man sinned. And then in response to that sin, God spoke those paradigmatic words of judgment in Genesis 3, 14 through 19. And then we began to see the outworking of sin as Cain killed Abel. And yet in the midst of the outworking of that sin, there was also hope as at, at the birth of each of her sons, Eve articulates this hope that this child might be the seed of the woman. And then we see again that mingled judgment and hope in Genesis chapter 5 as we have this genealogy which faithfully traces the line of descent and and yet there's also judgment as in each generation we, we read that refrain, and he died. In that genealogy, we, we had this, this refrain that each one of these, these men mentioned in the genealogy had other sons and daughters. And those daughters, they, they uh, come into play here in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And as we go through this chapter, I'm going to I'm going to give us each unit, rather than preview the, the, the different units of the chapter here at the beginning, I'm going to give us each unit as we go. And so in this first unit of text, in verses 1 through 4, what we have here is multiplying transgression. And as we, as we go through this, we'll see that all through this chapter, there are references back to earlier Material. So, for instance, in this first line of Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, we read, When man began to multiply on the face of the land. And this should call to mind for us the way that God commanded uh, the man and the woman to be fruitful and multiply. And that should call to mind, Genesis 1, 28, the way that God had made man in his own image and likeness, and his intention was for man to reflect his character in all the world and to multiply so that all over the world, in every corner of creation, those who brought God's presence, God's authority, and God's ways in their very existence, they would live that out throughout all of God's world. And so God's intention, really, by making man in his image and then by commanding them to be fruitful and multiply was to fill the world with his glory. And so that's beginning, that's beginning to happen. Men are multiplying on the face of the land, but the world, as we're going to see, is not going to be filled with God's glory as a result of this. Uh, we read here in the rest of verse 1, when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. And again, this links us up with the previous chapter where generation after generation it was said uh, that so-and-so had other sons and daughters. And then verse 2, we read of the sons of God. And this, this phrase um, invites us to consider who is being described here. And there are, there are different understandings. Um, in my opinion, there's really only one understanding of this that is convincing. But if you disagree with me on this, uh, my conclusion on this, that's okay. Um, I, I I'll, I'll be frank with you, the, the main reason that I come to the conclusion I do has to do with what is stated here. In verse 1, we read of, of man multiplying, and then we read of daughters being born to them. And, and in the previous chapter, we've read of men having sons and daughters. And now we encounter this phrase, the sons of God. And 
Uh, elsewhere in the scriptures, for instance, in Job chapter 1, verse 6, the sons of God appear before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And then we have a passage like Psalm 29, 1, which in the Hebrew actually reads, the sons, uh, it says, ascribe to the Lord, O sons of God, literally, but they translate it in the ESV at any rate, they translate it, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. This phrase, sons of God, in, elsewhere in the Old Testament refers to angelic beings, uh, members of the heavenly host. And, and I think that that's what it means here. I think this is referring to rebellious angels. And, and it seems to me that the phrase sons of God is to be understood in contrast with sons and daughters of men, and that that's the reason it is used in this way here. Um, but let me, let me tell you a couple of other interpretations. Another line of interpretation has been to suggest that perhaps this is something like the godly line of Seth, and that what is happening is that the sons of God, these are, these are godly uh, uh, descendants from the line that's being traced in Genesis chapter 5, this line of people who are walking with God, and they are intermarrying with daughters of men in the sense of worldly, unbelieving women. Well, I don't think that works because, again, the daughters of men, in verse 1, recalls the other sons and daughters from chapter 5. And in chapter 5, it's the line of Seth that's being traced. So I think the most natural uh, way to understand the, the daughters of men and the sons of God is to contrast not the line of descent, which is the same in chapter 5, but uh, the nature of these, these people, their, their origin in terms of uh, do they descend from a human father and a human mother, or are they angelic beings? So I think that the Bible is, is telling us the truth about uh, the, these, these legendary figures that we read about in Homer and in places like the Epic of Gilgamesh, and really all over the ancient world you read stories about these, these people of extraordinary size and strength and ability who are purported to have a divine parentage. And I think the Bible is, is telling us the truth about that, that, that yes, this happened. Uh, that, that the sons of God, these heavenly beings, in verse 2, saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Uh, sometimes people object to this and they say, well, uh, Jesus says that in, in the uh, resurrection, people will not be uh, as they are now, uh, but they'll be as the angels, and that is not procreating. And in response to this, I would say the New Testament also speaks of these angelic figures who are leaving their proper abode and, and taking on human properties and doing things that they should not do. So I, I don't think that the words of Jesus necessarily exclude uh, what uh, Genesis seems to be depicting here. Verse 3, then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. That word flesh is going to figure prominently throughout the rest of the passage. And I think what's, what's being communicated is, okay, we, we have this now 
this prohibited union that's taking place between these sons of God and the daughters of men, but these people are still flesh, and they are not going to be, be allowed to live forever. Uh, this is the, uh, a Hebrew word, olam, that could be translated something like for an age, and I think that even suggests something like a thousand years. So in contrast to the nearly thousand-year lifespans that we saw in Genesis chapter 5, Methuselah lives 969 years, in contrast to that, his days shall be 120 years. So it seems to me that what's being said there in verse 3 is the Lord is saying, I'm not going to allow these people to have these long lives anymore, and he, and he limits their lifespan to 120 years. And then as you as you watch the lifespans across the rest of the book of Genesis, it's as though they gradually shorten down to about this length. And Moses lives uh, precisely this long, 120 years. And even today, the, the oldest person that you might find on the face of the globe today is probably not going to be more than about 120 years old. Many people are going to die much younger than that. And then we read in verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. It seems to me that these Nephilim are the products of this union between the sons of God, these heavenly beings, and the daughters of men. And it seems to me that these, these Nephilim are uh, people like... Uh, those that we read about in the mythologies, people like Gilgamesh, who uh, is purported to be, uh, you know, part divine and part human, or people like Achilles, who has a, uh, a goddess for a mother and a, and a man for a father. Uh, notice that it says, the Nephilim were, were on the earth in those days and also afterward. And, and I just want to observe here that the text does not explicitly say that God brought the flood to put an end to these people. That's not what the text says, um, and, and that's not what the New Testament says either. So I take that phrase, and also afterward, to refer to what we're going to see over in Numbers 13, 33. You remember when the spies go into the land, they see these Nephilim in the land, and they report on them. So I think Moses is saying, okay, look, the Nephilim were in the land in those days, the product of these unions, and also afterward. So apparently this happened again, uh, where these uh, sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took wives any as they chose. And that resulted in, in more of these, these uh, mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So what, what, what's going on here? Why is the Bible telling us this? Well, it's interesting. Unlike Homer, who in his Iliad and Odyssey really devotes the whole story to the, the epic deeds of these mighty heroes... And unlike the author of the Epic of Gilgamesh, who again, his whole story really celebrates the prowess and the might and the unique abilities of this hero Gilgamesh. Unlike those stories, it's as though the biblical author is, is content to say, I know you've heard these legends, I know you've heard these myths, and here's the true story. Now let's move on to what really matters. And for the biblical author, what really matters is what God is doing. What really matters is 
who are the people who are walking with God? What really matters is, who are the people who are pursuing God's purposes? Who are the people who are going to enjoy God's covenant? And so I think this account, the brief nature of it, it shows us several things. Uh, one thing it shows us, if we, if we consider um, the, sort of the broader context here, and, and often with the Bible, you get these, these very terse, very uh, brief descriptions of things, and, and it really requires you to think about the broader context and to, to exercise your imagination to understand what's going on. So as we think about the biblical world, this is a patriarchal world. And in a patriarchal world, daughters don't get married without their father's consent, as you're going to see in the rest of the book of Genesis. Um, Jacob can't just show up and, and decide he's going to elope with, with Rachel. He has to go to Laban, and Laban is going to set the terms, and then Laban is going to give him his daughter, first Leah and then Rachel. So in this world, no daughter got married apart from her father's consent. And this tells us that the, that the fathers of these daughters of men were consenting to these unions with these sons of God. And, and it shows us a, a widespread society, a, a widespread context where people are disregarding God. They are, not, they are not thinking to themselves, why am I here? Who created me? And why did God make me in his image? And, and what is my purpose on this earth? No, they see someone who is impressive, someone who is perhaps overwhelmingly glorious, and they think for themselves, it will make me better for my daughter to marry this person. And so they disregard God and they, they live for themselves. And, and this wickedness is just multiplying, as we'll see in the, in the next uh, episode, the next set of verses. But another thing that we're shown here in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, is how little interest the biblical narrator, the biblical author, Moses, has in these figures. It's as though Moses is willing to, to acknowledge these legendary heroes and then just move on to what's important. And, and I think that one, one upshot of this, one application of this, is that we should learn Moses' perspective. We should learn to look at the world and to look at life the way that Moses does. I mean, after all, these Nephilim who are on the earth in those days, they're not going to survive the flood. And these Nephilim, even Gilgamesh, you read, you read the story of Gilgamesh, Gilgamesh does not attain to immortality. He, he is not a savior. He is not one who is going to accomplish salvations. And so the, the biblical author, he's interested in what God is doing, what God's purposes are, what God's covenant is going to look like. And I would suggest to you that this is what our interest should be. We should learn from this narrative to distinguish between what is significant only in a worldly sense and what is significant in an eternal and lasting sense. So we want to have our, our appetites trained by a passage like this. In the next unit, in verses 5 through 8, what we're going to see here is wickedness, grief, and grace. So we come to, to Genesis 6, 5, and we read here, the Lord saw 
that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And I think that Moses has worded this to remind us of Genesis chapter 1. You remember Genesis 1? God would create something, and God saw that it was good. But now, God has created, and it's as though he's allowed humans to go their way, to make their choices, and what he sees now is not goodness, but wickedness. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that word for great, is like, it's, it's etymologically related to the word for multiply. It's almost as though uh, the, man, the men are multiplying in verse 1 and the wickedness is multiplying in verse 5. And then notice what he says at the end of Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The 1984 NIV rendered this only evil all the time. And, and that's true of everyone. I think it's important to note here, that's true of Noah. That's true of Noah. You want proof that's true of Noah? Well, there's about to be a flood that's going to wipe out everybody. And after the flood, when it's only Noah and his sons and Noah's wife and Noah's sons' wives who are the only humans left, and in Genesis 8.21 when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Uh, Genesis 8.21 is just like Genesis 6.5. So it's very important to see this. It's not, it's not as though Noah is somehow uh, exempt from the effects of Adam's sin. And it's not as though Noah is somehow this, this perfectly obedient human who doesn't have a sin. No. Just like everybody else, Noah, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's true of him before the flood, that's true of him after the flood, and yet more proof that it's true of him after the flood is what he does after the flood. Genesis 9:21. after he planted a vineyard in verse 20, he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. So Noah is going to sin after the flood. Noah's a sinner. We need to really understand the depth of the pain of Genesis 6-5. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The book of Ecclesiastes, as if paraphrasing or rephrasing this statement, says, God made man upright and he has sought out many schemes. God did not make us to be people who every intention of the thoughts of our hearts are only evil all the time. God made us to be people who were made to love him with all our hearts and all our souls and all our might all the time. That's what God made us for. And in contrast with that, we have become people of whom it can be said every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then verse 6 is a remarkable statement. And in verse 6, Moses writes, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. There's actually a word play here with Genesis 5.29. In Genesis 5.29, Lamech articulates this hope. He called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us 
relief from our work. And, and this word for relief in Hebrew is this term nacham, and the word for regretted in Hebrew is the same word nacham. It's almost as though Moses is saying what Lamech was hoping for is not going to be realized in Noah. Uh, Lamech was hoping for relief, nacham, and, and instead what happens is grief, to the heart of God, and, and it's just, it's a word with a wide range of meaning, and, and it, there's, it's, it's punned on here in, in Genesis 6-5. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. That word for grief is actually the same Hebrew term that was used back in Genesis chapter, chapter 3, verse 16, when the Lord greatly increased uh, the woman's pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. The same pain that she's going to feel is the grief that God feels. And then in Genesis 3:17, when the Lord says, cursed is the ground because of you, in pain you shall eat of it, same word is used to describe the grief that the Lord feels in his heart. So the most problematic fact about our sin, is not that it destroys us, which it does. It's not that it harms other people, which it does. The most problematic fact about our sin is the fact that it grieves God. It pains God. I can remember once having a conversation with a man who was living in sin, walking in sin, and as I began to, to ask him who he thought was most hurt by his sin. Initially, he was, he was almost flippant with me. And, and he, was, he, 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 he named the person closest to him as, as possibly being most hurt by his sin. And I said, no, I don't think that gets at it. And he began to, I said, who, who do you think is most hurt by this? And, and he began to explore other possibilities, perhaps his parents or other, other people. And I said, no, I think ultimately the, the person that's most affected by this is, is the Lord. And the person you know, most need to be concerned about as a result of this is the Lord. And it was when he began to consider God that, that it was like a switch was flipped and the lights came on and he realized the depth of his iniquity. And this is the way it will work for us as well. We will realize the depth of our iniquity, the pain of it, the grievous nature of it, the horror of it, when we realize that we have sinned against the Lord. I think this is why in Psalm 51, David says, it is against you, you only have I sinned. David is not saying, I didn't sin against Uriah, I didn't sin against... No, he's not denying that he sinned against people. David is saying... What is most grievous about this is the fact that I have sinned against the Lord. And, and I want to suggest to you that it is this perspective, that we have sinned against God, that will help us to understand the flood narrative. Before we go on to that, though, let me, let me just make a comment about about what this shows us about God, because sometimes, sometimes people will make comments or, or they'll make theological statements about the Lord that, 
then seem to be in conflict with what we read here. So sometimes you'll read that, the, that God is impassable, which means something like incapable of experiencing emotion or incapable of feeling pain. And, and in one way, this is true of God. God is infinite. He is almighty. He is eternal. He is unchanging. God is immutable. If God were to change, it would imply that there was something wrong with him that had to be fixed or that he had some deficiency that had to be filled or that he was somehow imperfect and he had to change in order to become better. And none of that's true of God. God is altogether perfect, altogether good, and he lacks nothing. And yet he is also capable of feeling pain. And, and I don't know how to hold that together other than just make both affirmations at the same time. God is, he's unchanging and he is immutable. And the Bible says that he feels pain. And I think what's being communi- communicated to us here is that God is genuinely relational. And I can't, I can't explain that to you, how uh, a God who is above time, who does not experience a sequence of events... He doesn't have to wait to see how we will react. He is never surprised by anything that we do or say. And yet somehow he truly and genuinely enters into an ongoing, interactive relationship with us. This is, it's a mystery. But, but it's true of the God of the Bible that he's both transcendent and personal. The Bible holds both sides of that equation together. So every intention of the thoughts of man's heart is only evil all the time. And the Lord regrets, but I would add, he doesn't regret in the sense that if he had it to do over, he would do it some other way. No, he regrets and he feels pain, but he hasn't done anything wrong. He hasn't done anything that needs to be fixed. And then that brings us to verse 7. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry, and that's that same word, I regret that I have made them. This is what's offensive about the flood. And if we consider this in our flesh, from our, our natural human inclinations, it will be offensive, it will, be, it will always be offensive to us. The idea that God would decide all people everywhere are going to die. But I want to suggest to you that here again, the Bible is teaching us the right perspective. The right perspective is not, we deserve to live. The right perspective is not, it is unjust of God to punish us for our sins. The right perspective is, and and what the text assumes, these are the assumptions that Moses is making, and this is why Moses is happy to affirm that this is what God did, and to tell this story, and not feel like he needs to hide it, or apologize for it. No, Moses' perspective is God is sovereign. God is absolutely in control. And this is God's creation. God is the one who has created this world. And God has the right to do with his creation as he pleases. And God is altogether holy. God is altogether good. He's altogether righteous. And so God has mercifully given a gift of life that people have not stewarded well. And he can freely withdraw that merciful gift of life. What this text assumes is that God does not owe 
mercy to any of His creatures. So, as an application point here, I think what we should do in response to this is consider God's perspective. We should consider God's perspective as we read the narrative. And then, I'm going to say this, and then I'm going to kind of try to back up from it, but I want to encourage you to feel mercy in response to this. And and even as, as I say that, rather than telling you to feel mercy, I would like to be able to provoke the feeling of mercy in you. So as we, con- as we continue to consider this narrative, hopefully that will be happening. So it's just a fair warning. I'm trying to provoke the feeling of God's mercy in you as we go through this passage together. Um, look, at, look at verse 7 again. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. You know, a lot of people, they really love their animals. Even, even this morning, my wife was talking to her father, and, and they were talking about a new dog that my uh, in-laws have gotten, and they were communicating affection for this dog. And we have a dog. We love that dog. We have a cat. We love that cat. People have birds. They love their birds. People have horses and cows, and, and in general, people feel affection for animals, and this is right and good. God gave to man dominion over all the animals. We'll look at the consequences in verse 7 of man's sin. Look at the ramifications, the, the outworking of man's sin on the animals under his dominion. Because of man's sin, the animals are going to die as well. And then verse 8. But before I read verse 8, let me just invite you to consider what, what's about to happen. What's about to happen is God is going to reveal to Noah that he is going to bring a flood on all the world, and he's going to wipe out all flesh. And, and I would just invite you to imagine the flood. Imagine a wall of water. This is not, we should, when we think of the flood, we should not think of gently rising water that just stays in place. No, I think you should think of, of powerful currents and walls of water that are moving very fast, that are moving boulders and moving massive structures and and overwhelming, smashing waves that will have their way, that are unstoppable and that continue to move after they have crushed everything in their path. And you think of the result of that flood, not just houses and all possessions and cities and civilizations destroyed, but lives ended. And at the end of the flood, there is nothing alive except what is on the ark. God mercifully does what we read in verse 8. Verse 8, Noah found favor. You could translate that, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God decides within himself that he is going to look with grace on this one man whose every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And God mercifully decides to reveal himself to that one man and to work his salvation. That is like what has happened for us. For those of us who know Christ, for those of us who have experienced 
the good news, the, the revelation from God, the word of God, that there is a way for the overwhelming judgment that should crush us, that should destroy our lives, that should destroy our homes, that should wreck our civilization and leave nothing alive. The, the, the wrath of God that should fall on us because of our sin, there is a way for that to be assuaged, propitiated, and we can be forgiven if, if we will place our hope and faith in Christ. We should feel the same kind of mercy that Noah is going to feel when he, see, when he sees the flood. And he knows that God has mercifully spared him. Uh, we read then in verses... So in, in verses 5 through 8 there, you've got the wickedness of man, the grief of God, and then the grace of God shown to Noah. Now that brings us to verses 9 and 10 where we have the generations of Noah. So in verse 9 there, these are the generations of Noah. This is like what we saw earlier in 2.4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And then in 5.1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And there are going to be others after this one, but here in 6.9, these are the generations of Noah. And then we're told here in verse 9, and I think this is a result of the grace of God in Noah's life. In other words, we should not misinterpret this. The book of Genesis is not, is not written to teach us that Noah somehow attained to his own perfect standard of righteousness. No, we've seen Every intention of the thoughts of Noah's heart was only evil all the time, but Noah found favor in God's eyes. God looked with grace on Noah, and as a result of this, as a result of what we're going to see worked out in this narrative, which, let me just, let me just put this in, in our terms. God is going to reveal himself to Noah, and as a result of that revelation, Noah is going to be called to build this massive barge-like boat that in our terms is 450 feet long and 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. It's a massive building project. It would take him a significant amount of time. Probably Noah had to stop everything else he was doing in order to do this. Probably Noah had to devote all of the resources at his disposal to building this ark. It probably cost him all of his energy and all of his savings. Think about the conversation he had with his wife. Honey, what are you doing? Well, I'm supposed to build this big boat. And just why do you think you're supposed to do this? Well, this God revealed himself to me and told me there's going to be a flood. A flood? Honey, I cannot imagine a a flood of waters that would require a boat this big. Oh, right, you don't understand. I'm supposed to put all the animals, two of every kind of animal, on the boat with us. Honey, would you like to see a counselor? I think we should, I think we should have you checked out. I think maybe there's something not right in your thinking. In response to this, though, Noah does it. Noah does it. The building of the boat, here's what I'm communicating to you. God has revealed himself to Noah, and Noah responds in faith. That's what, that's what the only explanation for why Noah would build the boat and devote his life savings and his working days and take the time to persuade his wife and his sons and their wives. The only reason he would do this is if he is convinced that what God has said is going to happen is 
what is going to happen. And Noah has to take that on faith. He has never seen anything like this before. There has never been a flood before. Noah can't say, well, remember the SARS crisis, and now we've got to prepare for the coronavirus. No, there is no, there is no South Asia respiratory uh, syndrome that he can compare this outbreak to. There has never been a flood before. He has to take it on faith. He has to respond in faith. And because he does, the book of Genesis says, Noah was a righteous man. So I would, I would submit to you that Noah is righteous by faith through grace. It's just like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Uh, it is by grace that we are saved through faith. And, and the same for Noah. He was saved by grace through faith. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. That means he had integrity. He had integrity. And then Noah walked with God. And I want to think with you for a moment on, on this walking with God. This man has been, he's experienced God revealing himself. He's responded to God in faith. He's been declared righteous. And now, like Adam before him, Genesis 3.8, God walked in the garden in the cool of the day. Like Enoch before him, who, Genesis 5.24, uh, Enoch walked with God. Now, the direction in which God is proceeding, I think this is part of the metaphor. We're to think about the metaphor, think about the action of walking. You can only walk with somebody if you're going the same direction they're going. So in terms of direction, God's direction becomes Noah's direction. You can only walk with someone if you're associating with them and not those who are not associated with, with them, with, with that person. So Noah has decided, I'm going to go in the same direction that God is going, and I'm going to associate with God, which is going to put him at odds with, and Peter draws this out, and Jude draws this out, and, and the author of Hebrews draws this out. It's going to put Noah at odds with everybody that is not going in God's direction, and everybody that is not associating with God. And this also speaks to purpose. Purpose. Because you're going in a certain direction to arrive at a certain place. Noah is walking with God because God's purposes have become Noah's purposes. And then also manner. The, the way in which Noah lives. The way in which Noah walks is going to be God's way. This is what it is to walk with God. To walk with God is to make it so that God's purpose is your purpose. God's direction because of the purpose is your direction. Those who associate with God are going to be your associates. And the manner that is required for those who would be in God's presence, that's going to be the manner of life that you adopt. This is what it is to walk with God. And why do you do this? You do this because you believe you do this because you trust. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We'll read more about those guys um, as we proceed. Here, let's just get before us again the facts that God made us to represent His character. He made us to fill the earth with His glory. He made us, thinking of uh, chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. He made us to please Him, not to grieve Him. He made us to walk with 
him. Look at verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. So the the earth is supposed to be filled with God's goodness, filled with his character, filled with those who bear his image, and instead it's filled with violence. Verse 12, God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And again, I think the reference to flesh there is in contrast to the sons of God. So it seems to me that, that the flood is addressing directly sinful people, and I think this is why Peter, for instance, says God knows how to uh, keep those angels um, in, in chains until the time for their punishment. God didn't punish those sinning angels, those demons, with the flood. He punished people. He punished flesh with the flood, and then he's reserving these sinning heavenly beings, and he's keeping them restrained for the day when their punishment will, will come. God's, so I think this is why the author of Genesis, Moses, I take it to be, is speaking of flesh repeatedly through here. God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. Verse 12, for all flesh had corrupted their way on earth. Verse 13, and God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them. And the word destroy there is the same Hebrew term that is rendered corrupt in verse 11, corrupt in verse 12, and corrupted in verse 12. Same term, formulated slightly differently. The Lord then says, look, they've corrupted the earth, so I'm going to corrupt. I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to destroy them with the earth. So in verses 11 through 13 there, the earth is full of violence and corrupt, and so God is going to destroy it. And we should learn from this what Galatians 6 says when when Paul writes, uh, don't be deceived, God is not mocked. What a man sows, he will also reap. We should not be deceived, and, and we should not grow weary in doing good, Paul goes on to say there. God cannot be mocked. If God made the world to be filled with His goodness, to be filled with His glory, and that's not what you're about, you will meet His wrath. You will not escape it. So then in verses 14 through 16, we read about the instructions for the ark. God tells Moses exactly, I'm sorry, God tells Noah exactly what to do. Um, Verse 14, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark. He's going to tell him about the rooms. He's going to tell him how to waterproof it. He's going to tell him the dimensions of it, the roof for it, the door for it, and the decks. So I'm just going to read through these verses. Verse 14, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch, waterproofing the thing. Verse 15, this is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. And I just suspect that the instructions there are abbreviated. I suspect that there was a lot more instruction probably that went into exactly what what Noah needed to do. I keep saying Moses here because uh, there's similarities between the ark into which uh, Noah and his family 
are saved through water, went into, and they were saved through water. And the basket, that the word, the word that's actually translated basket that Mo- Moses' mother put him into, a basket that's covered inside and out with pitch, uh, it's the same word. And it's the only other place in the Bible, except for, uh, I think, it, no, it's the only other place in the, in the rest of the Old Testament where the word ark is used uh, to describe the basket into which Moses' mother put him. And then just as all of Noah's contemporaries die in these floodwaters, all of Moses' contemporaries, the the boys, the Hebrew boys, they're going to die in the waters of the Nile. And just as uh, God is preserving life through uh, Noah, God is preserving life through through Moses. So there's a sense, I think, in which um, Noah and Moses are typifying another who is going to go through the floodwaters of God's wrath to bring about uh, salvation and to preserve life. And I'm thinking here of, of the Lord Jesus. Verse 17. Verses 17 and 18, the Lord speaks of death and life. Verse 17. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy. That's, there's that word again, the word we saw back up in verse uh, 13. Uh, same term that was rendered corrupt in verses 11 and 12. To destroy all flesh. Again, not dealing with the sons of God, but with the, the, the people who have uh, been complicit in this evil to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. So on the one hand, God's wrath is going to fall on all. But on the other hand, verse 18, the Lord tells Noah, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. This language of establishing the covenant... Is, is language that seems to speak to the, the uh, putting in place or the upholding of a, of a covenant that's already been cut. In general, in the Old Testament, when they speak of making a covenant, they speak of cutting a covenant. It's almost as though they cut the animals in half, and then they walk through the pieces of the animal. They cut the covenant to, to uh, put it in place. And then the establishing of the covenant is like the raising up of the terms of the covenant. And I think that's what the Lord is saying he's going to do here with Noah, not least because of the way that what God said to Adam is going to be repeated in chapter 9, verse 1. After, they, after the, the flood is over, Genesis 9, 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So it's as though what God has set out to do in creation with Adam, he's going to carry forward through Noah and his descendants. And in that way, God is establishing the covenant that implicitly he, would, he had already cut with Adam. Uh, look at verse 18. I will establish my covenant with you. God is the one who has invented the idea of the covenant. God is the one who initiates the covenant, makes it with Adam. God is the one who establishes the covenant with Noah. God is the one who preserves the lives of Noah and his family. God is the one who, con- who has convinced Noah to go ahead and build this ark. God is the one who saves. So there's, there's strong reason here for us to be confident in God. This is a strange time. We can't talk to people. We can't, we can't really go out and do evangelism. We're, we're cut off from people, but, but we can be confident that God is going to be 
accomplishing his purposes. God is going to be, Jesus is going to be building his church. He said he would. I'm not saying we should just sit back and be passive. I am saying we should be confident in the Lord and then we should take every opportunity and be entrepreneurial and do anything we can to walk with God and to proclaim the good news. I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Notice here that God is interacting with Noah and he's working the salvation of Noah's whole family. So I want to say in the midst of this coronavirus, I want to say to the fathers among us, you have a responsibility here. You have a responsibility to create a culture in your home where the word of God is heard and where the word of God is upheld and enforced and, and people live by it. So this is your responsibility, dads. Uh, create a culture where every day everybody in your house is exposed to the word of God. And then I want to invite you to think about Noah's wife. I don't think any wife among us is going to have to do the kinds of seemingly crazy things that Noah's wife had to do. I mean, we're about to read down in verse uh, uh, 21, look at verse 21, also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Can you imagine the project? Start gathering food for all the animals, every kind of animal. We need to figure out what they eat, and then we need to gather a stockpile of food in this massive boat that we've built. This is crazy. This is bizarre behavior. What are we doing trying to build a zoo? The animals aren't even here. Well, the Lord's going to bring the animals. Why do we even have this big box, this big rectangular box? Well, because the Lord said he's going to bring a flood. Um, ladies, we should, you should think about Noah's wife. And thank God that you don't have to follow a husband who is having to do the kind of crazy things that Noah had to do. And then as Noah's wife embraced her husband's leadership, let me encourage you wives among us to embrace and follow the leadership of your husband. Children, um, I don't think any, any of the children in our midst are going to have to, uh, again, look at their dad doing something as crazy as what Noah was doing. Um, but, but children are to be obedient to their... Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. So uh, kids, your fathers, if you're, if you're a kid whose, whose parents are members at Kenwood Baptist Church, your parents are trying to engineer your salvation in the same way that Noah's parents were trying to engineer uh, the, the salvation of their children. So let me urge you, children of Kenwood Baptist Church, to be submissive to your parents, to be... To be uh, receptive to what your parents want to teach you, to pay attention to what they're doing. They're trying to help you avoid the wrath of God. They're trying to spare you the floodwaters of God's judgment. As we uh, finish off this chapter, look at verses 19 and 20. Of every living thing of all flesh, there's that word flesh again, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them Alive. That's going to be repeated at the end of verse 20 again, to keep them alive. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. All that language, birds, animals, creeping things, it all reminds of Genesis 1. God granted dominion over the animals to Adam, 
over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the, the livestock and the creeping things. Same words in the same order, except the fish don't have to be mentioned because the fish are going to be fine. The, the swimming things are going to be fine in the flood, but Noah is to, he's to exercise dominion over the animal kingdom. God is working salvation. He's a new Adam who's going who's to experience a new covenant, and then he's going to come into a new creation. And this is all pointing forward to the, the last Adam who is uh, going to obey where Adam failed, and he's going to save where Adam lost, and he's going to um, uh, put, up, put, put in place the new covenant, which will be everlasting. We've already read verse 21. Look at verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. That verse sounds a lot like, here's another connection with Moses, Exodus 40, verse 16, which reads in the ESV, this Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. And, and the wording of those two verses, Genesis 6, and Exodus 40, verse 16, is even closer if we were to read them in Hebrew. And I think that, again, a connection is being made between Noah and Moses, both of whom built a rectangular structure with similar dimensions, the ark and then the tabernacle is what's described there in Exodus chapter 40, and both of whom obeyed by grace through faith and, and, and through these building structures. There, there's a covenant that's going to be established, and there's salvation that's going to be accomplished. As I conclude this morning, I just want to leave these three simple sentences in your mind. This is God's world. God is just. God is merciful. I think that's what the flood narrative teaches us. This is God's world. God is just. And God is merciful. And in response to that, I want to offer you Romans 12, 1 and 2. Romans 12, Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy in revealing this text to us. And we pray, Lord, that as we contemplate the flood today and in coming weeks, you would equip us to speak to people about the coronavirus. Lord, we pray that you would help us to highlight for people the enormity of your mercy. This is not a universal affliction. Not everyone is going to die. And you don't owe anyone life. You are mercifully giving every one of us, everyone in the sound of my voice, has mercifully received from you right now the gift of life. And Lord, everyone who gets to hear about what Jesus did for us, the way that he lived a righteous life, the way that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin, is mercifully receiving from you an opportunity 
to be saved from your wrath. Lord, I pray that you would make us like Noah, people who by grace through faith are righteous, people whose purpose and direction and association and manner of life all reflect who you are, people who walk with you. Lord, make us grateful, joyful, hopeful, and help us to preach the gospel even at this time. Lord, we love you, and we want your name to be made great. We pray that you would build up our hearts through faith, through the scriptures, and give us hope in Christ. Amen.